Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. This, uh, this show is a very special one to me because I have the opportunity tonight to interview not one of my most favorite authors, but my most favorite author. And he's my favorite for a number of reasons. One of them is that, as all of you probably have learned with, with the information coming out all over the place these days, that our American history is flawed. It's, no, it's not only flawed, it's downright, it's a lie. And we, we have been taught and we have been indoctrinated into philosophies that are not appropriate, that are not true, and that, that don't give us the appreciation for the antiquity that, that this continent deserves. And, and though most of us have often questioned, Rick Osman has gone much further than questioning. He's investigated. He's put material together. He's, he's brought the truth into the light that is, that is just phenomenal. And I, and I swear to you, if you read the graves of the golden bear, you will never look at American history the same way ever, ever again. You'll be enamored by it. You'll be fascinated by it. And it will send you into all sorts of amazing discovery that, that you've been deprived of because for whatever their reasons, um, our government, our, our educational system for sure, has not been putting out the truth to us. And it's a shame. It's an absolutely crying shame. So while I do believe that this book really should be um, in every school, uh, the chances are of that of happening are, are probably slim to none. But if not have the book in the schools, at least require teachers of history to read this book because it, it opens your eyes. It wakes you up. It brings you into a greater realization of just exactly what it was like 
to not only put this country together, but to found a, a, a government. And, and not only that, what has been done to protect the government. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating book. I've read it a couple times. I will read it a couple more times before I'm done with it. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about Rick Osman. His current research uses satellite imagery, LIDAR analysis, hydrology studies, and many other clues to find or identify ancient structures that are pretty much hidden to, to more traditional detection techniques. He also uses terrain analysis techniques to assess line of sight capability across the landscape features either natural or artificial, that would enable long-distance communications using ancient materials and technologies. These results are compared to the analogous system used in the old world contemporaneously. He writes a regular feature for Ancient American magazine entitled Ancient Fortresses of the Ohio Valley, and in it he's written about both accepted archaeology and counterculture traditions. This has even gone to the point of historical cabals that hide certain history. You can find him at www.ancientamerica.com. So I'm him. Hi, is this you, Rick? Yes, it is. How are you? Oh, great. I was worried I was going to be alone here. And <laughs> no, I overcame a small technical issue and I have joined this party. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're with us because otherwise this interview would have been terribly boring. Well, Although we'll not so much, make, really. We'll try to make it as fascinating as possible. <laughs> and by the way, high praise. You've already read it a couple times and you expect to read it a couple more. I don't know if any higher praise than that. Oh, it's, you know, every time I read it, I find more. Um, I find things that I that I hadn't seen the first time, and there there have even been a couple times when I've been going through it. It's like, how did I miss this section? And then I realized I hadn't missed it. There just had been so much else that had been so fascinating; it had been overshadowed. And I mean, what you've done with this book is just amazing. I I think it's a piece of art. I really do. And. Um, and I've, you know, I've got two master's degrees. I taught school for 25 years. So, um, and I have a love affair with books that is just phenomenal. So, so to be able to say that, that, that your book really, really fascinates me to the point that I've read it twice and, and will absolutely read it a couple more times because you can't absorb all of it in one reading. You just can't. So, you know. Yeah, well, how long, you know, just that, <laughs> how, how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, to, to actually put it into the form you see, which I think you have the second edition. Um, the first yeah. edition I wrote from the middle of March until the 10th of October was the publication of 2011. Okay. So it, was, it was, fair, you know, fairly ample time to put something together, but what I was putting together was stuff I had been studying for a very long time, so it made it a little easier. Well, it's just, um, it's amazing, and I think the 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 first the first thing that that um, 
the first thing that you, you address is the fact that the, um, the ownership of this territory has been in, is in dispute, even though it's not being disputed. And, um, it, it, yeah. Okay. You know, um, that was going to be one of my main questions. Um, you know, I, we talk about how the fact that Columbus never set foot on this land and, and 400 years before he was around, um, there was a papal bull, um, that, that literally told everybody in Europe that, they could claim land, but only if it, if there were no Christians there. Now, right. and, that was, and that was more or less reissued in 1452 by the Okay, can you? Is there a way of turning up your microphone a little bit? Perhaps, maybe I can <gasps> just get oh, a little closer to it. That's fabulous. Is okay. That, all right. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was nice. a, another papal bull in 1452 called Terra Nullis, meaning literally empty land. And uh, yeah, that's the one that underscored the ability of anyone to claim land in the name of the church if there were no Christians there to dispute it. And Christians was a pretty narrow uh, term under the Catholic interpretation. Yeah. Now, I know that Jefferson was looking for Welch people. Have have the Welch ever even thought of bringing this up? I mean, wouldn't well, it not change the Welsh, history? Yeah, not okay. the Welsh directly, but, but the heirs to the throne, if you will, because by the time Columbus had done his thing, um, during the early 16th century, Elizabeth I and John Dee, her uh, chief aide, I guess. Yeah, confidant. That's a good, <laughs> good word. Maybe a lot of other things. Anyway, he, he was... Yes bringing up the ancient history of the Brits or Brutes or Britannia about how they had sailed to the West under, and this was going back into a deep Welsh history that was actually mm-hmm. written in Colbrin and Cymru, Colbrin alphabet and Cymru language. And it was also the, the beginnings of the Chaldee church, the church of the Chaldee, um, which is not the same as the Catholic Church, but it actually predates it. So, okay, so so they it, really had a claim to this land. Yes, they did have a claim to this land, but it was never prosecuted correctly, and that's that is the legal art, the word of art. Uh, they never prosecuted their claim sufficiently or correctly to make it stick. And but wouldn't, now wouldn't they have had? Wouldn't they have had to go to the Pope, and the Pope would have just said, forget it? Yes. That, that's pretty much exactly what it would have been, unless they were willing to pay homage and tribute to the Pope and the Church. Mm-hmm. It just it so, boggles the mind. And some things never change, by the way. Um, yes. <laughs> governments today do the same thing, of whatever their scope. I, I'm beginning to realize that. So, so this this papal bull was issued and then reissued. Now, as these explorers came across the pond, um, they all staked a claim in one place or another. How did they stake their claims? 
well. Initiating the claim amounted to a a, a a a ritual. That's the right word. Of planting a nation's flag and a Christian flag and saying a small speech, dedicating this to the church. That was how you initiated the claim. Then to record that claim, at least if we move forward in history to around 1700, the French went around throughout their New World claims and they laid down lead plates inscribed with a date a place, and whoever bore this plate in the name of the king of France. And they would put it in a creek bank or river bank because that's how they mapped out all their claims. Mm-hmm. The only one that I am aware of that is is currently known for its placement of the French is called the Celeron Plate, and it is in keeping in uh, Massachusetts at the Antiquarian Society. <clears throat> now, there were other well, ways of doing it at other times, of course. Well, prior to that, and I'm sure they all, you know, planted their flag and planted a Christian flag and probably left a couple of friars around, too. But prior to that, planting a plate or something like that, I mean, did they have to then go back to Rome or wherever the Pope was and, and register it or something? More or less, yes. That, in effect, that's what they did. And and it was done with geographic maps, which, of course, made the map-making uh, art advance at a greater pace, or at least the known map-making art. Um, and, you, and this is about the same time, of course, that you have these really strange maps show up that show, like, North America before anyone had been in North America, or... The 1506 Piri Reis map shows Antarctica before 200 years before anyone had been to Antarctica. And where did that come where did, from? <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question. That is a great question. Yeah, do but you have the any mysteries? <laughs> you know, I, I do not. But what I do find interesting is where they put their prime meridian for that map. Now he didn't draw all of it. He compiled it from maps from other sources, and he said so. Mm-hmm. But the the prime meridian for that particular map is Cairo, Cairo, if you want to go by the mm-hmm. eastern. But but I'm near southern Illinois, so for me it's Cairo. There you go. <laughs> okay, so so we've got a map that is a compilation of other maps, but but it also that map depicted Antarctica as not being covered with ice too. That is accurate. Uh, at least that's what it seems to show to me. And, I, okay. you know, it, it's it's pictorially correct for that concept. But it also shows a, a complete connection to South America. Now, that would only have been true um, 12,000, 13,000 years ago before the big melt. Unless okay. you know, it was ice, and then, and then it would have been shown as ice. And it's not shown as ice, it's shown as land, so... Well, you know, there well, there are other other maps. There are other maps too that have been um, discovered that are fifteen thousand. There's there's a, a stone map that shows even um, it, it shows the equator. It shows um, not Greenwich, but it shows it, it maybe Cairo. Um, it's it's on a rock, and um, I think that's that's 
15, 16,000 years old even shows an area that might be depicted, uh, you know, interpreted as Atlantis. So there are ancient maps out there that, that, that have been drawn that, that there's truly no way people could have done it unless they had been above the planet, I would think. Well, that or they were just very, very good at surveying. Now, the other thing is, when you look at that time frame, the 15,000-year, 13,000-year time frame, somewhere across the Atlantic, there was an ice bridge. And because that ice bridge existed, and in places that ice was three miles thick, that also means that the ocean was 600 feet down. The surface of the ocean was 300 to 600 feet below where it is today. And that made the oversea route shorter by, you know, not a whole lot necessarily, but depending on where that ice sheet wedged mm-hmm. up to the continents, it made it a convenient land and sea route. So that's, and that's the idea that is portrayed and promoted by Friends of the North, an organization of scientists who promote the idea that the first transition to North America came 17 to 25,000 years ago across the ice. But from now, Europe. Okay, and so you're talking fifteen to thirteen thousand years ago, right? Yes. Did did that ice bridge um, more or less cover up the the Minnesota Michigan um, copper mines, so that so that they weren't they weren't accessible at that time? Um, <laughs> surprisingly, not entirely. And, and not continuously. It did and it didn't, it did and it didn't. It had phased in and out. But from 7,000 years ago, it's been ice-free. From about 8,700 years ago, it's been ice-free. Okay, so, so it's, a shorter, it's a shorter trip. They had navigational tool, um, tools of some sort. I mean, the Norse had their... Um, I don't know what kind of stones they were that, that they could look through and they, they had some way of, of guiding their ships um, with those stones. Well, they, the, the sunstones gave them the ability to see where the sun is in the sky, regardless of how cloudy it is, because it's a birefringent crystal. And uh, the polarization of the sun allows them to pinpoint the source of that type of light, that kind of polarized light. So how did they use that, that for navigation? They could tell where the sun was. They could do a sunshot. And and they would have to have something that would help them keep the time of day. And, uh, you know, hourglasses don't work all that well on pitching boats and such. No. So, and, okay. and other forms of uh, other forms of timekeeping devices that rely on you know, continuous and uh, steady force of gravity they don't work in a boat not not a no. boat at sea no i've been there so, so they had something else but they also were able to navigate you know if the if you see a bird and it's got something in its mouth it's going back to land mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, so they can follow the bird. so 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 we've got people literally making it to north america um, 9,000, 10,000 years ago or more. Yes. And we would call them today, we would call them the maritime archaic. 
100 years ago, 120 years ago, they were called the red paint people. And well, and they were real. Okay. Go ahead. Now, Go ahead. Uh, weren't there people here already? Yes. There were. And, and there were probably a, a greater a degree of genetic diversity then than, well, right when Columbus almost got here. <laughs> yeah, I I have this thing. He never set foot on this continent. So, you know, why we give him a day, I don't know. Um, you know not that I can change it, but I refuse to celebrate it. Um, but I'll take the day off. Um, so the people that were here, did they come from the other direction? Or where did the people come from that were here? Okay, well, let's look at that. When you say here, you're talking primarily, let's just call it New England. Okay. The the Algonquin um, tribal and linguistic group is there. Narragansett, you know, pick pick a bunch. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, 20, 25 different tribes that claim that as home. And and claim it from other tribes, too, incidentally, because, well, they did that. But... um, and to, and to the west of you was the Seneca and the rest of the Iroquoian Confederacy. Now, here we're talking in, in historic times, but we think that existed in some form or another for three or four hundred years at least before white settlers reached New England, what we call today New England. Okay. Now, to the, now to the northeast, you go up into, well, extreme northern Maine and into Nova Scotia, you've got the Micmac. Mm-hmm. A little bit further west, you got all the Ojibwe. There are dozens, hundreds of different languages, let alone cultures, that are involved here. So, who was here first? Well, and <laughs> yeah, no, I I gotcha because there were giants here, and there were little people here. There were all sorts of cultures that were here before we were discovered. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I just find it, you know, we were never lost. Um, <laughs> right. We were right. we were invaded. We were invaded more than anything yes. else. Uh, and more than once. <laughs> <laughs> Many times, I believe. But we only, Actually, you know, we, right now we're only focused on, focusing on something that happened less than 500 years ago. When we yeah. have, you know, 50, 50 70,000 years of occupation, that can be verified if people would just, you know, let the data speak for itself, but they won't because they must interpret it as well. Very recent by comparison. Mm -hmm. You have people who were driven completely out of their uh, vocations because their findings didn't agree with the the paradigm that was accepted in academia. You know, that's still, that that still actually makes me crazy the fact that they can they have actual proof of things being here things happening and and they have physical evidence and academia still refuses to accept it but they go what way beyond refusing want? to accept it that they 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 even go to the extent of uh professional assassination of someone who disagrees with them well that's true it. too yeah, no, it just um and and here's where here's where my outrage starts. Here's where here's where I really get upset with with everything because people are are 
you know, are destroying evidence. They are ignoring facts. They are perpetrating lies and they are making our children stupid. On purpose. Yes. And that's a crime because these kids are going to grow up and they're going to do the same thing to their kids. And, you know, who is it that said if you tell a lie enough, it becomes the truth? Was the Hess? Yes. Well, he was one of them. Uh, Daryl Rudolph, yes. But the the rule of propaganda is the same as it has been since, well, the term was coined 3,800 years ago or so. Okay, it was in a different form, but it meant the same thing. Okay, so so this continent has been occupied pretty much as much as all of the other continents. I mean, even from the time that we were one big landmass before the plates broke apart, it was a one it was a one world order because that's all there was. There was one group, and everybody started to become diverse and different and had different climates and had different attitudes. And, and so, you know, we, be, we, be, we began to become different. But North America, to me, I mean, I, I get outraged because when you look in the, in the history books and you talk about ancient history, they take you to Rome, Greece, and Egypt. But ancient history is here, too. And it's as oh, yeah. rich as it's it possibly be. And, and why are and why aren't we teaching it? Well, a couple of reasons. I, I and this is just my perception here. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing we can really do is is assess the evidence. And when you're talking about archaeology or anthropology or history, the amount of evidence is so paltry for the periods of time before even recent history that we can't get a good handle on the entire picture. What we can do is say, look at this. Isn't this fascinating? Mm -hmm. And we can get that much of an acknowledgement out of, well, academia beyond that, (laughs) beyond that is a little more difficult. That's fascinating, but do you have any money to study it? Because that's the only way we're going to pay any attention to it. Okay, well, let's, let's take some of the things that, that we really do know are true. We have um, copper mines in Michigan and Minnesota that have been in use for 9,000 years. Yes. About. And yes. that copper can be traced to many different places on the globe. We, right? we think so, yes. It's a, a more pure kind of copper, from from my understanding. Um, yes, but, it, but, it is. Okay, so, so somebody was, there was a copper trade here. There and certainly they sold was the, copper extracted. Oh, yeah, I mean, all over the place. I it, mean, yeah. Let, let's put this in perspective for the listeners. The estimates of how much copper was extracted ranges from somewhere between a million pounds and 500 million tons of of copper extracted. Now, you mentioned the purity. Uh, A lot of it is 
100 pure, like it was done with electrolysis. It is that pure. Yeah. <laughs> and and when you do find that piece that has a large intrusion, or inclusion actually is the right term for this one, it is pure silver, just as pure silver as the copper around it, which is seemingly impossible. And so the, there was a guy by the name of Fred Reedholm, and he wrote a, a book called Michigan Copper, The Untold Story. In it, and I'm getting to quoting him. When the archaeologists discovered all the copper and started comparing everything over there in the old world, they said, why did they put silver in their copper? And over here, <laughs> they say, where did all the copper go? Huh. But they will never put the two together because it would have to cross an ocean before Columbus. Yeah, and and that seems to be... Um, the big the big stumbling block and when i was when i was researching giants and and all of the giants in this country i ran up against the fact that the smithsonian was not exactly the place where artifacts went it's where artifacts went to disappear yeah and there has to be a black hole in the basement someplace or a barge that dumps stuff in the atlantic ocean we have and eyewitness that would be, accounts attesting to that. Seriously. This was a man whose last name was Powell. And how yes. did he come? How, how did he, what, what were his credentials that gave him the um, illustrious um, title of being in charge of the Smithsonian Institution? Well, he wasn't entirely in charge of the entire institution. However, he was the founder and um, first director of the Bureau of Ethnology for the Smithsonian. And at the same time, initially, he was also the second director of the United States Geological Survey. So he was dual-headed and in charge of where the railroads went. Okay? <laughs> and at a time, okay. the railroads were going everywhere. So he was able to... Um, assist, abet destruction of ancient sites at the whim of himself and whatever railroad he was directing at the time. Or was paying him. Or was paying, or, or both, yes. Or or he okay. was, you know, making, he was, his main thing, I believe, was to make sure that evidence was destroyed. And, and a, a couple of, a couple of prime examples <laughs> happened to be the fortresses I've been studying for almost 30 years now. Okay, yeah, that's where I was going with this. Um, so so his, his main purpose in doing what he did was to make sure that there was, there was no evidence or proof that there was any culture here that, that was Christian before Columbus came. Is that basically it? Yes, it was a little more encompassing than that. But yeah, he was trying to guard the sovereignty of the United States of America. I mean, is that really still necessary? <laughs> In a practical matter, probably not. But remember, when he was there, it was only a hundred-year-old country. It was only a hundred years old. Those those contracts and and that history had not yet been completely modified. 
I think one thing people don't understand is that, you know, Declaration of Independence, we got our independence from England, and, and the, the perception is, and we were a country and we added states and everything was just, it ran very smoothly. It did not run smoothly. It was the biggest. No. I mean, it was, it was, it was an octopus of red tape. It was, it was espionage. It was all sorts of fascinating, you know, kids would eat this up if they were taught it. Well, yeah, I think they would too, or, or at least they certainly should. Um, oh yeah. They, they, the, and they should certainly be aware that the United States, the very young United States at that time was not the only country doing stuff like this. Who else was uh, doing the, it? The, you mean espionage and yeah. Uh, oh, all of them, probably. All of them, yes, certainly, all of them. Uh, like, and it, like for instance, he, today, uh, let's take a small country today. I'm not, uh, well, I won't take just a couple minutes. Let's take Iceland today. Okay. Iceland, a nice sovereign country out in the middle of no place with nothing that anybody wants, right? Right. Except for the bankers. Why? The bankers want it. <laughs> well, because people actually spend money there, and and they have money, and the bankers want all that money, or at least they want their hand in it. Mm-hmm. Now, a few years ago, when uh, the bankers, you know, 2008, when the world economy collapsed, and they told us it was a minor recession, <laughs> um, the the outcome of that in Iceland was. They negated all their debt. We're just not going to pay you. And they still haven't, and they probably will not. Mm -hmm. Wow, what would happen today if our president said, hey, it's time for the United States to declare bankruptcy, and I have some experience in that area. (laughs) Wow. What would happen? No, back, back to what do countries do for espionage in Iceland? They have an intelligence bureau. Mm-hmm. It's probably more secretive than ours are, and we don't have a an intelligence. We have a network of, you know, deep state whatever they are. Yeah. Well, so so, so there was there was a great deal of. I guess my point was that there was a great deal of of bumpy roads, so to speak, in, in getting this country functional. Now, I'm not going to say we're functional now, but <laughs> but not, not even going woman. there. <laughs> not going to that one, but but to to get everybody to work to get no, it, it does describe us today. Um, but but what was happening was that that this was no smooth process there was a great deal of struggle. There was, there was pay for play probably. And, and there was a great deal going on. And, and especially with, with Jefferson and, and him sending um, Lewis and Clark out to find the Pacific and, and the orders that he gave them and the method they were supposed to use, which was the, the grand cipher, which is fascinating. Um, they were actually spies. Well, in part, yeah, that was one of their missions. Um, it was an intelligence gathering mission, most certainly, no doubt about that. Was it um, 
entirely for that purpose? Well, no, it was also to, you know, do a land claim. Not right. for the Louisiana Purchase because we had just, com- you know, just completed that one. No, this was for the Oregon country. We were going to claim coast to coast. Okay, so they were sent out, and they were given orders by Jefferson to communicate to him through the Grand Cipher a number of things. Yes, indeed. And, and you know, one of them was um, if they found any Welsh-speaking tribes. And what were, what were the other ones? That's the one I remember best. Okay, well, let's from the beginning. Um, okay. Uh, he was going. Meriwether Lewis was tasked with finding out where the French got their mammoth skeletons along the Ohio River. Let's start with that one. Okay. Because there was, along with the well-speaking Indian myth or legend or information intelligence, if you will, there was also the need for an exportable commodity. And ivory was a very exportable commodity, even if it was 10,000 years old. So Jefferson was looking for resource intelligence on this huge new land, and even some that he already had that nobody knew much about. So, yeah, there was a whole lot going on with that. But part of the letter that Jefferson sent to Meriwether Lewis as his form of orders included using the Grand Cipher to send messages back about anything that would impinge on the sovereignty or security of the United States. Those two words appear. So um, Lewis would have been schooled by Jefferson on what to look for for signs of a previous Christian identity amongst natives or amongst people who lived there, whoever they were. My, the rest of my book, and I'll just go there for a minute, the rest of my book goes into who that might have been if it happened. And the uh-huh. Welsh come up the Welsh come up as just Welsh, or Welsh come up as, well, the Romans who had been in Wales or Britain for 80 years or more, uh, long enough, you know, third, fourth generation, they were there, they knew the languages, they knew the songs, they knew how to dress to, to blend in with the locals. Um, so, yeah, like that. Would that have been the Ninth Legion or part of the Ninth Legion? Yes, and all of their camp followers. Oh, so, okay. That's, in all... I, I wanted to get into this because um, it's still a fascinating story, and I have bunches of questions I didn't get a chance to ask you last time we talked. So the, the Ninth Legion and everybody that followed them and all of their animals. Accoutrement, too. Accoutrement. Um, Disappeared. From history, yes. At at about what time frame was that? Um, Sometime in the middle to in the last half of 117 A.D. And we don't have an exact date because, well, it was just some kind of secret mission. They up and left. And and they had to have up and left in a lot of ships. Yes, it would figure it probably 1,500 ships or so. 
Okay, and these were uh, Roman. Depending on, depending on what, yeah, they were, they were, well, yes and no. They were Roman legion. They had Roman officers for the most part. But by this time, again, this was third or fourth generation of people under Roman occupation in Britain. So there was intermarriage. There was a lot of stuff. Uh, okay. And we've only we've only found out in the last you know fifteen or twenty years that even the lower ranks of the Roman legions had wives and children that traveled with the legion. Now they didn't necessarily travel into battle with them, but when they were encamped, they had you know ten thousand uh, human shields, I guess, around the army. Okay, that so to be married to the army. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. So your theory, and and I would I I absolutely think you're right, is that there is evidence along the tributaries, the the Mississippi and the other tributaries, that there were stone forts that were built in the manner that the the Roman Ninth Legion would have built them. Yes, or or had the Roman Ninth Legion refurbished existing forts, it would still end up looking something like this. Okay. Um, I, I'm all for it. And, and then, and then theoretically they um, were assimilated into whatever cultures were here. Rather or they were than eliminated. Or they, or they were all killed. Yeah. Um, or they were abandoned. When when Rome collapsed in you know four call it four twenty six four seventy three, um, then the trade route would have trade routes secret trade routes incidentally would have collapsed yeah. with it. So okay. anyone who survived that would have had to find new markets and and new modes of crossing the oceans. One person from the Ninth Legion turn up back in Rome. Yes, indeed, but long before Rome collapsed. In 142 AD, um, Lucius Aemilius Carus became governor of what we called, or what they called, what the Romans called, Arabia Petraeus. We would call it the city of Petra. And you would know Mm -hmm. its edifice by seeing it in one of the Indiana Jones movies at the end of the Crescent Valley. So that's 30 years carved in living stone, living sandstone thing was carved during the occupation of that geographical place by the governor, Lucius Aemilius Carus. It's been modified a little bit since then, but he carved that out or had it done. Wow. Okay, so so theoretically then there were about 10,000, if this this scenario is is accurate, there were about 10,000 people they, the, and a whole bunch of ships that, that went yes. to North America and would they have stayed together or would they have scattered? Well, since you ask, um, probably <laughs> depending on, you know, where on the exact date, because, you know, we lost a half a year there when we oh. know they disappeared sometime in the last half of one year. That half of that year is hurricane season. If they're going to North America, they might have to cross the path of a big storm. And they could be blown off course quite easily. 
and we think, and and there is statuary, coin, uh, all their other cultural evidence that at least some of them ended up in Mexico. Okay. Now, um, most people, when we, we talk about these ships that they sailed, you know, across the ocean and everything, especially Columbus, um, and I would think the ones that were prior to that weren't even that big, his his ship was, I don't think, even 100 feet long. His biggest ship, I believe, was 92 feet, um, okay. Santa Maria. So, and, yeah, and they, they were think, not as big as the canoes, the ocean-going canoes, the Titanu Caribs met them in when they first got here. Their right. ocean-going so, canoes were over 100 feet long. Yes. And, and, of course, the, the sailors in those boats were also over seven feet tall. Yeah, they were big. Um, but but I think the thing that most of us, you know, when we when we have concepts of these huge ships, I think we, we're thinking of what the movies show, and that is not an accurate depiction of what these ships were. They were small. They were little. I um, my my husband and I, um, he was captain of a hundred and forty foot square rigger out of Gardner's Basin, and when I think of that ship crossing an ocean, it terrifies me. So, uh, and and I know that that you know a good nor'easter would have sunk it. So, so you're right. I mean, a hurricane or two could have wiped out even half of that entire fleet in a heartbeat because they weren't oh, yeah. really seaworthy. Um, <laughs> well, no, not for that kind of sea. Certainly, they're good up to sea state four or so. And and uh-huh. even that's a really wild ride. Well, um, with those sails, um, I mean, there's no way to maneuver. You know, you have to, you know, head into the wind or, and hope. Um, <laughs> or run before it. Those are your only two options. Yeah. So and, so I can see. neither one of them are good him. options, by the way. No. <laughs> and they had horses with them. <laughs> I mean... Um, so, so let's assume that maybe a third to a quarter of them actually made it to North America. Um, there are gold coins and things like that that are discovered all over the place. So we know that they that the Romans were here. Yes. And and um, what would the purpose be of of revitalizing stone forts or building stone forts on the Mississippi and the other tributaries? Well, my premise, and and I think I draw a pretty good argument for it. My premise is they came here to control the traffic on the rivers, as they were doing in the Rhine and the Danube and other rivers in Europe, and, and of course the Thames as well. They mm-hmm. were controlling the traffic, and they were making people pay tax and or tribute or whatever you want to call it to go past there. Well, and, and, you know, 600 years later, the Vikings did the same thing on the Thames. So, uh, it was, it was a well-established practice and whoever got it for the Mississippi was controlling, you know, the trade of 15 million people. So there was, you know, certainly treasure and, and somewhat to be um, gathered there. So 
who was going up and down the Mississippi then? Whoever was trading for whatever commodity was okay. uh, sought in Europe. And it could have been copper. It could have been hides. It could have been feathers. It could have been uh, some kind of grain that we're not familiar with, but you know the Furs. Indians were. Uh, uh, furs, certainly. Maize, as in corn. Uh, turkeys, as in, well, turkeys. Turkeys. And, <laughs> yeah, dried fish, salted fish, smoked fish. Smoked probably wouldn't survive that trip because it's at least three weeks to get back to Europe. Uh, but well, with the, you know what what I what, what the story that's evolving, which which to me is is phenomenal, is that this was it wasn't that they were just putting up these fortresses. There there was significant traffic there, so that they were able to. Um, to make a great deal of money just by, you know, paying a toll booth type stuff. And um, it, it, it must have been not just the Indians, but it had to be other countries as well that were up and down the rivers because it, it sounds to oh, me yeah. as though there, there was a tremendous amount of trade here. So, so we're talking, um, Early, early, early on, and then, and then something happened because yes, some, and, well, and, well, several somethings happened, but one of the major ones was in, uh, depending on which calendar, either five sixty yes. two or five thirty two or five thirty six, depending on which source you wish to believe the most, something of extraterrestrial origin, extraterrestrial origin impacted somewhere in probably the North Atlantic and pretty much wiped out the crops for a decade in the British Isles and most of Ireland and even up into Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. It also put a tsunami into North America, 27 miles at some places, particularly in the Carolinas. Uh, Ed Grandin wrote a fantastic book called Man and Impact in the Americas. He documented all this stuff. Now, back to that 536 date uh, or 562 date. That is the time when Prince Maddock, Admiral of the British Navy at that particular time, got blown off course by, well, an extraterrestrial impact in the Atlantic and was driven to the shores of what we now call North America. Um, he might have called it the Emerald Isles. Okay. And it took him 10 years to took him 10 years to rebuild his fleet and, and regather all his men and that were left and get back to Britain and talk to his brother. And his brother's name was King Arthur II. Brother said, well, let's just go there. It sounds great. And they packed up another group of 10,000 people, we think, and, and horses and sheep and goats and uh, decided to go to North America. And again, probably hurricane season. So not all of them made it, but they put ashore, we believe at uh, Mobile Bay. And uh, that's, that's why the daughters of the revolution put up a monument there that was later taken down because it didn't agree with prescribed history. Oh. So why anyway, that going around? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So by 572, according to this, um, King Arthur was in America, 
by 574, he was dead. I think the, there could be a little bit of adjustment on those dates. But um, Lee Pennington said to me one time when I had a blog talk radio show, uh, hey, if somebody could help me get there, I know where there's a cave where King Arthur was buried. So we went. And in fact, we went a couple times. But imagine me and, well, a guy that at that time was, I guess, about 75, uh, dangling over a 150-foot cliff to get into a cave. It was fun. <laughs> and what did you find? A burial cyst. He was right. Okay. There's also a sign or a, a symbol over the entrance to that cave that is the exact same glyph that is found on an artifact from a place called Tintagel, which is where the um, legendary conception point for King Arthur, except that that was King Arthur the first. So I don't know. Maybe they kept, he kept it as a, um, what's happened to the cave. It is still there. That's not the only piece of uh, engraving on it, but, in fact, there's one from 1863 that looks like it was carved yesterday. This one is worn completely almost to nothing. And have the historians validated this? No. The historians have validated the the version that was found at Tintagel. They've dated it to, uh, in that particular case, very early 5th century, 420s. So that would be in Arthur I. And it looks like the hand of a three-year-old learning to sign his name. That's what it looks like to me. So mm-hmm. it's that that A with the drop center bar. Wow. So anyway. So, and that's in this country? No, Tintagel is in Wales. But oh, the okay. Burial cave is, but the burial cave is in Alabama. Yeah, that's what I thought. And And this amazing piece of history is ignored and not taught. Correct. Most certainly. So so when they came in the five whatevers, what happened to all of those people? I you know, I I can't believe that twice, you know, five, ten thousand people are wiped out totally. So so some people had to have survived and been assimilated. That is a Certainly a valid hypothesis. Let's explore it. Um, Okay. According to the native lore, um, and I'll just give you a a brief uh, connection to two people who wrote about this. One of them was the then governor of Tennessee, John Sevier, or Seaver, and the other one was by then, General George Rogers Clark. They heard the same tale, essentially, from two different native chiefs, Chief Tobacco and Chief Cornstock, mm-hmm. that that the area had been inhabited once by uh, tall, red-haired, freckled, blue-eyed pains in the ass, and we just rounded them all up and killed them and told where it happened. Okay, and it, and that if you went there today, today being 1799 in the case of George Clark, 1797, I believe in the case of John Spear, that you could see a 
pile of human bones on this particular island in the Ohio River. Today, you cannot even see the island. It has been eradicated by the erection of a series of locks, dams, and chutes. And nobody thought to preserve history. Nobody cared. So the the local tradition of that particular island of bones, uh, and and it's not the only such site mentioned in the account, but it is the primary one and the only one that has a corroborating testimony, by the way, um, is just downriver, 14 miles, from a place called 14 Mile Creek. And at that junction of 14 Mile Creek and the Ohio River, on the Indiana side, you have what is called Devil's Backbone. Uh-huh. And that was a fortress site. And it was a fortress site that was studied, documented, assessed, you know, planned out, different plan views. Uh, in, and this happened in 1869-70, published in 1873 by Edward T. Cox, geologist for the state of Indiana. And, and it, it described a stone fortress uh, with the longest wall segment being about 560 feet 12 feet high 15 to 20 feet thick and another wall that was artificial stone artificially stacked and it was 75 feet tall and it joined up to a natural edifice that was virtually uh, completely vertical this place was very Defensible, and it was 215 feet above the natural flood level or uh, natural pool level of the Ohio River. So you could see for 10 miles, you know, along the river at any given point. On top of this ridge, at places it gets down to about four feet wide. And did I mention it's 215 feet above the river? Um, yes. <laughs> there are yes. depressions in in the ground, um, and people, five of them. Uh, there are also five of them at Snake or uh, uh, Fort Mountain, Georgia, set up in a similar way, at similar distances apart, and it's just a depression in the ground, and nobody can figure out what it is. My my concept hypothesis, uh, you know, whatever, maybe, is that it was used for ballista balls so that they wouldn't roll off the cloth prematurely. Ballista balls is a form of ammunition for a, a, a basically artillery of the day for the Roman legions. Yeah. It was also so, the artillery of the day for Carthage and everybody at the same time. Yeah. So, again, there's the reference to the possibility of Rome. Um, yes. Seems like a very real reference to me. Uh, I'm. I, well, yeah. You don't have to convince I, I, me. I don't have to convince you. I'm glad. But to to give the listeners another little bit of um, technological insight as to why I think the Romans were involved, one of the things that the Romans did in Britain and elsewhere, particularly into Iberia, is they set up relays of line-of-sight communication systems. There is a villa in Portugal that they're investigating, and they, a, a handful of archaeologists and workers, they've been investigating it going on 15 years now. But there are 24 
observation point slash towers around the rim of this valley around the villa which is in the center and this is an occupied roman occupation period villa each of the towers is unique but all of the towers blend artificial structures into natural topography to to form a, a good high point observation point and or signal point now some of them have found have contained other uh, enterprises so to speak there's been gold smelting found there's been um, uh, ceramic green work found broken up uh, of course animal bones and whatnot but it, it's really interesting what these guys did in their spare time yeah <laughs> now the Romans were phenomenal builders and indeed architects, engineers, builders, chemists. I mean, they were, yeah, they were, they were amazing. And so the legions, especially the ninth legion, I, I'm fascinated with the ninth legion. Um, they, they had the ability to, to, cons- I mean, even their, their horses were battle horses and they were horses of labor. So, so that they, they were like the army corps of engineers, in many would, ways, yes, indeed. So, so they would go in and they would build, and and they were connected to the building of Hadrian's Wall, and so it would not be out of the realm of of the imagination that you know, in coming to North America, now who would have sent them? Um, well, Hadrian would be a good guess. Uh, because he would have been the emperor at the time. And then just after he died and his reign ended is when Carus came back to Petra. Yeah. So So it, it it's just were they sent to explore or conquer? Or I both? believe occupy would be the, I don't think they had to conquer anything. I think is whoever had the um the system, uh, the network, whoever was in control of the network, um, somehow failed, and Rome moved in. Now, whether that was because of um, Carthage had had control of the network and they conquered Carthage, and then they waited another almost 200 years, or maybe it took them 200 years to find out what Carthage was up to, um, and they went and they rebuilt it to suit themselves. Now, We're talking, does that mean that... Time sorry, frame. go ahead. T- time, time frame. Carthage fell in 146 B.C. Okay. And and the Ninth Legion disappeared from history in 117 A.D. So for, for a total of, what, uh, 160 years. So for 160 years, perhaps no one used the network that was established in North America and possibly to as far at least as Central America. Um, and yet it existed. It just fell into, you know, disrepair. So the okay, infrastructure now, had suffered. Now I know that, that, you know, Europe has had the plague and stuff like that from time to time that has wiped out 60, 70% of the population. Could something like that have hit North America that would have sort of um, 
destroyed networks and things like that? It almost certainly did, and on multiple occasions. Um, and I'm not—I'm not even including smallpox from the 17th and 18th centuries. Well, that was—that um, was, was, you know, that was the sailors. That was <laughs> governments too. Um, yeah, in the okay, let's go to the 15th century, early 15th century, 1421, to be precise. The Chinese had made an incursion into North America, and they'd met up with the what was left of the network at that point in time, and that uh-huh. was capital capitaled at Cahokia, Illinois, right across from St. Louis, and it was probably all one big city then too. It certainly is today, but at that time is probably when the smallpox was first introduced to North America. It may have been on purpose. It may have been deliberate because, well, the network still existed at that time. And the Chinese have always been um, fond of unconventional warfare. So, uh, so yeah, they might have introduced a plague so that they could take over empty ground. You know, that whole Terra Nullis thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just a Catholic thing. No. Well, you know, you, you you like to think that there is compassion and all sorts of attributes to people when they're coming into strange territories, but there's not. Well, yeah, yeah. right. That's, that's why I'm not going to, you know, jump over myself to welcome aliens from outer space. <laughs> hey, if they get here, they're already ahead of my game, you know. Yeah, but it just, you know, when we look at this time frame and we see, you know, going back 2,000 years and 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 even prior to that, there, there were civilizations here that that were massive um, and and they've all left signs and and when the signs are found for the most part, they're either ignored or they're destroyed. And I don't understand how, how you, you, you get away with doing that. How how you can disparage someone who's done good work. Um, I don't know how they get away with it either. Because, you know, at least for the last 20 years, we've been watching and they still do it. Well, I, one of my yeah, favorite I, favorite examples of how bad it can be is Virginia Steen McIntyre. This lady got a PhD. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not accurate. She got a master's in geology. And her PhD was an archaeological site in Mexico. And she tested it five ways to Sunday. Meaning she did five different tests with five different samples for each test. She tested it five ways to Sunday. And she came up with a pretty consistent bunch of data indicating ages of 120,000 to 250,000 years. Well, that was not going to work for anybody. And she was thoroughly (laughs) drummed out. Yeah, she was thoroughly drummed out of her entire profession. She couldn't get her Ph.D. because no one Mm -hmm. would accept her work. Uh, That is, I should say, 
the archaeologists would not accept her work. The geologists were great with her work. Wow. What a concept. Yeah. Hard, hard science versus interpretation. You know, usually it's science versus um, spirituality and stuff that, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, if you have expertise and you have facts, then it would seem to me you're obligated to report whatever the facts are and, and let the facts build up one way or another to lead you in the direction that history actually went. But that's not what's happening. No, indeed it's not. And I don't know why. Um, you know, the, the whole sovereignty thing is part of it. But another part of it seems to be control of information. And I don't really understand why that one is important. Uh, okay, yes, people say we can't we can't uh, get any uh, disclosure from the government about alien contacts because everybody would be scared to death and society would break down. Okay, yeah, I can see some logic in that. I don't believe it, but I can see the logic. I can't see that logic applying to this. What? Why would history have to be hit? Yeah, so and the only thing that that holds up is this whole sovereignty question. But but okay, let's just say that that you know all the facts are put out there, and that yes, indeed, the Welch were here. I mean, the country is the country. They're not going to change that. We might owe some money to, I don't know. Native Americans? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, you know, well, yeah, it all depends cause, on... Cause we, if we're claiming land to which we do not have sovereignty, you know, like everything okay. that's under Bureau of Land Management, which is 2.8 million acres, um, then they have a legal claim on it. Well, oh, the thing is... crap. <laughs> you, well, you have to, you have to um, keep going back into... How far back are you going to go? I mean, there were the Native Americans. And then there were other cultures here that we totally are ignoring that may oh, have been absolutely. here before then. So, right. so if, it's if, if, if the question is the sovereignty, then we can't admit to any of those. Uh, the Natives are still here. We can't completely ignore them. But we can fight them on the basis of, well, um, we had a treaty with you. Not that we accepted abided by our terms but well they've only been here about 15,000 years I mean somebody was here before them oh absolutely but that's not the the, they they being the government would never be able to show uh, sovereignty if anyone had been here before the natives because Columbus invaded and conquered by effect the natives, so by right of conquest. But if there were already Christians here, his invasion was illegal. Well, wait, I don't and understand the whole right this of conquest because, is out the window. But he hit Haiti and he hit Hispaniola. He never hit North America. That's true. So he but has yet, no claim all on the it. land claim, claim on it. Yeah, so did France. Yes, they did. And they and they came and they laid down claims. The, the Spanish and the French they actually laid out 
claims and they put in uh, benchmarks for surveying and, and laid it out. And they were, you know, getting pretty close to having it right by the time they had to give it up. But, um, and, and, and part of claiming land is defining your claim, which is why Powell had to be in the positions, plural, he held USGS and Bureau of Ethnicity. He got to control the information. Why? Well, it, it, it about had to come down to the sovereignty question. But see, I don't understand here. In 2017, unfortunately, I don't see it makes any difference. Why can't we just know the history? Obviously, we can't fix it. No, we can't. And, and, we can't fix our errors. No. Uh, but again, it, it comes down to what is the value of the 2.8 million acres in BLM lands? What is that value? Because when it comes down to it, that's all the United States federal government has to offer to pay off its significant debts. <laughs> that, as and I going, understand and it. Going, and going back to, you know, this is the only president we've ever had who has experience in declaring bankruptcy. <laughs> Seems to have served him well, too. Um, yes, indeed. So, so, so you've spent a great deal of time working on the the line of communication and stuff like that in your area, which yes. would have been what the Roman Legion did too in in you know communicating from from line of sight. And well, and, yeah, uh, they would also have sent messengers, but the messengers. Incidentally, that was part of my criteria in searching for all the fortresses. How far would light armor or heavy armor be able to march in a day through this terrain? That's how, mm-hmm. apart, how far apart the fortresses would be. <laughs> so, and by the way, the premise works out pretty well. Yeah, you've located a lot of them. Uh, indeed, but part of that was I started using a ruler on a map. If I found two, I should look for more in between them at, well, those distances of marching in a day's time. And yes, Mm -hmm. I found more. And as the terrain gets easier, they're a little further apart, providing the terrain accommodates the line of sight communications. How how great a distance have you been able to identify? Um, I've got one that is by line of sight, I believe it's 29 miles. But that's from the highest point in two different counties. And one of them is, mm-hmm. incidentally, right along the Wabash River. The other one is one of the cross-country tracks, which is fascinating. So, and so they're action. And, and that one connects to Devil's Backbone. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you, you seem to be in, in an area that was either first developed or most precious as far as as value goes to be held by any particular group because you know because of the um be, because of the the 
the travel and and the fact that they could you know stop and they could they could get tolls and stuff like that so that so that have you found any way of estimating how old those ancient quote quote unquote ancient forts are um, well, yes and no um going by the archaeological studies that have been done, which kind of few and far between. Most of these sites have undergone multiple refurbishments. We've got one site that's in far eastern Indiana near um, Lawrenceburg, and it is um, dated initially dated to the first century A.D. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> However, it, it was also refurbished in the late 4th century to very early 5th century A.D. So this would have been, that second one would have been the exact transition period between what the archaeologists called the Adena culture and the Hopewell. Early woodland to middle, middle woodland. Take your pick. Nobody knows what to call anybody anymore. <laughs> so I'm going with just dates. And the dates are 1st century A.D. and 4th to 5th century A.D. as definite carbon date verifiable ages for two different building spurts at this one site. Now, from this one site, you can see into Kentucky and into Ohio and into other parts of Indiana, very important parts. And oh, by the way, it is directly east, give or take a quarter of a degree, from that very high site on the Wabash River that I was talking about earlier. So there's a, a line that goes all the way across the state of Indiana. And I can show several points in between that were also line of sight high points or man-made uh, terrain to augment those high points to get the message across. Well, and it, so, it, it gets it gets so complicated in places because there's an intersecting line to that one that is due south. So there was this land uh, border, I believe. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So there there were networks here that and yes. and you know so so many people um, and the kids are taught that the Indians were primitive or the indigenous peoples were primitive and you're not talking primitive. You're talking, you're talking highly technical. And I think what a mistake that so many of us make is that because we live in 2017, our brains are able to be far more um, developed than those that were back 2000 years. The reality is they are they were just as intelligent as we are. Maybe oh, yeah. more well, so. We can go, because, we can go know, back they ate 70 better. years. And I, well, not only that, but they were schooled better. We can go back 70 years in our own very recent history, and an eighth grader graduating the eighth grade would know how to survey. And, um, and by the time he graduated from high school in, say, 1920, he would be ready to enter into calculus directly. Today, mm-hmm. you, it's, it's almost impossible to get into calculus even in your first semester and, and, and succeed at it, first semester of college. Yeah. 
but they were huh. 70 years ago, 80 years ago, they were uh, 100 years ago. They were able to do it right out of the eighth grade. See, you so, know, that's one of that's one of my objections to technology, though I love it. Um, our kids aren't taught to think, and that bothers me. No, they're taught to use. They're only taught yeah. to use. And and um, all we need is is one great big EMP blast, and all of our technology goes out the window, and without iPhones and Google. Most of the kids that are under, thir- most of the people under 30 are going to have a terrible time learning how to learn. Yes. <laughs> Many of them will never accomplish it. I know. Isn't that Seriously. sad? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's true. It's truly depressing when you think about it in those terms. On the other hand, you know, I'll be able to send a message to town in near real time at about 14 words a minute with nothing more than a mirror. Thanks to a guy who did it 2,100 years ago. His name was Polybius. In case anybody has a real honest to goodness on the shelf paper encyclopedia, you can look him up even after the lights go out. Wow. So, so this is not Morse code you're talking. No, it's a, it's a five by five matrix. So in today's Latin alphabet, not the ancient Roman version of the Latin alphabet, we have 26 characters. But if you uh-huh. take either the C and the K and you say, eh, we don't care, it's one of those. Or you take the I and the Y, we don't care, it's one of those. Then you can make a 25-character matrix, five by five. Now, in Polybius's day, he did that with the Latin alphabet. Next to it, he did the Greek alphabet. And he would tell the the receiver which one he was using at that particular moment, not necessarily for the entire message, sometimes just for one character. And that was part of their cipher ability. The other part was they could just mix up the numbers as long as the other end knew what they had and just, you know, number substitution, but once removed. Um, During... Vietnam, some of the residents at the Hanoi Hilton used a very similar means of communication, just knocking on the wall. Wow. So, so yeah, impossible to learn? No, not hardly. Is it impossible to learn how to aim a mirror and reflect sunlight? No, not at all. What is difficult is getting your uh, words per minute up to something that doesn't bore you to tears. Um, <laughs> the best that... The best that telegraphers were able to do with, you know, Sam Morris's telegraph uh, was about 45 words a minute. That's phenomenal, by the way. That's phenomenal. Speed. Yeah. That's, that those were the most highly paid telegraphers on the planet. Those guys, people, I should say, not guys, who could do that. Guess what? The fastest telegraphers were not guys. Just saying. <laughs> um what about what but, about the uh, what about the wind the wind wind talkers, um, the the Indians that they used in World War Two one. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were just speaking their language that nobody else knew, but they had one of you know one Apache at this end, one Apache at that end, Navajo, and they could, uh, Navajo, they yeah. could talk to each other, 
and, and they could talk to each other, and no one else knew what they were saying. And they had to make up new phrases using their language to describe some of the things that they had to convey. But they kind of agreed on these before they, you know, went into the Japanese or uh, Pacific Theater. I mean, don't you find that amazing that that um, that, that that we were able to use something like that when technology defeated us? They had the Enigma machine. It took us forever to, to figure that one out. And and even prior yeah. to that, there was the Grand Cipher. And Long I, I forget that, how far back. Yeah, it goes back how? to about 1535, the earliest I know. And it was devised by a father and son team at the behest and or commission of the King of France. Um, and it served well, it still does, um, but it served the French well, at least in the 1890s, uh, when one particular message, because he actually had the key, was deciphered by an English cryptographer. One time they got it right. And he was wow. given the key, which, which, by the way, is the same, same reason the English ended up with the Enigma code, because someone gave it to them. They didn't decode it. <laughs> so, so... You know, it it to me, it it we are missing such a great richness to our culture that it's embarrassing. And well, and, yeah, I mean, you know, like these things, we could, we got someone who twenty one twenty two hundred years ago, more or less, um, was able to do something off the top of his head, even though he was a slave to Rome. He wasn't even Roman. He was. Greek by birth, and he was a hostage in Rome so that his daddy, a general of a small alliance, would not make war on Rome. And he was that hostage for 17 years. And he was a tutor to Africanus, who eventually took him to, well, Carthage for the destruction scene. And he was the only one who do, who recorded Polybius, was the only one who recorded that destruction. He's the only history of the destruction of Carthage that we have. And part of that was uh, describing how they did the flashes of torches in a five by five matrix. So, you know, there are real people and there's real history available for almost all of Rome up until that. It it, it really boggles the mind that. Well, yeah. And, And he also recorded that when Carthage fell, because, well, you know, they surrendered, um, and, <laughs> yeah. and and as the city was literally dismantled and Rome took everything, they kept records of everything they took. What they did not find was a secret trade route to North America. What they did find included 1,500 pieces of artillery, ballistas, uh, that were capable of defending the city far beyond what Rome could muster. And yet the city fell. I think it was given to them. Yeah, it sounds like it. it. Sounds like it. And 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 yet, you know, all of this stuff that you're talking about, none of it is taught in school. No, we're taught that Hannibal attacked Rome or tried to and, and failed. Yeah. Um, really? Because he was on the banks of the Tiber River ready to climb up Jupiter Hill. He proved his point. He could take Rome at any time. 
which, by the way, really pissed him off. Yes. <laughs> After taking the elephants that far, he went home. Um, yeah. But, you know, there there is that same richness in North America, I just, I, I, what, what breaks my heart is that there is so much, and I'm going to call it magic here. You've got all of the mounds that are all over, you know, the, the, the Ohio basin and stuff that, 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 that are antiquity that have artifacts in them that have giants in them for, for in some, in some, in some of them. Um, you've got Monk's Mound, which is in, in Illinois, and and that, I mean, just just the different levels of colors of soil that are in there is phenomenal, and how it's it was amazing. built, it's huge. Monk's Mound, <laughs> I guess, is all that's left of of an entire. Huge uh, well, actually, ship. there are. Oh yeah, there's a there's a really good display. Uh, in the visitor center. The first time I was at Monk's Mound, there was no visitor center. But today there's a very nice visitor center, including a scale, um, dioramic map of the site. And Monk's Mound looks like a postage stamp in the middle. And you can see 40, 50, 70 other mounds and features around it. It was the center of a vast civilization that probably spanned the Mississippi River into the mound, quote unquote, mound city portion of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and what? the reach of that city was at least, you know, two thirds of contiguous United States of today, Rocky Mountain peaks mm-hmm. to the East Coast, and as far yeah, down we, as the Yucatan and beyond. Now, now that 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 was about what time frame? Um, 900 A.D. up to about 1300 A.D. So, so this huge... And then it started its slow collapse. So this huge metropolis, nobody, nobody talks about. There's no history of it. There's no understanding of it. There's no, I mean, the mound itself has, I forget how many different colors, six or seven different colored soils. That, that make it up in layers and they don't know why and they don't know how because there's nothing growing <laughs> and they don't right. know and what's those in it. Right, and soils either. are not native to that spot. Most of those soils come from, you know, pretty grand distances. Uh, there's, there's white clay in uh, parts of Arkansas, uh, but that's a long way up to Mississippi and, and, and down the White River of, of Arkansas. Uh, there's blue clay that you can also find in Arkansas, but that particular blue clay, I believe, comes from Clay County, Indiana. Um, there's yellow clay, which I believe comes from eastern Tennessee. Um, but we can't get those samples to even test it. So, can't they do a core? Yeah, they, they've done many cores, but we can't get that evidence to test it. Ah. Oh. Now, see, this is what's so frustrating. Um, do they have artifacts, pottery, anything from that time frame? Yes, they do. And, and well, it's at least contemporaneous, if if not concentric. Most of the pottery and stuff was not on Monk's Mound itself. It was in the surrounding community. 
uh, most well, of the bodies of the remains were around it. Now, we believe, we know that there is stone in, inside Monk's Mountain. There's a stone structure underneath the clay structure mound. We know that because of drillings and whatnot. We don't know its extent. We don't know if it has contents or what those contents are. Is is it um, how accessible is it? Can you go on it or just direct, just around it? No, you can get all over it today. What about what about ground penetrating radar? It uh, because it's clay and because of its design, it is uh, continuously, pretty much continuously soaked with water, which absorbs all the radar energy. Oh, oh God. Um, magnetic I, resonance, I, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, magnetic resonance imaging, you know, an MRI? Yeah. Um, only we, in this business, we call it a magnetic anomaly detector. Mm-hmm. If you use two of them, it becomes a differential magnetic anomaly detector. That can get down, I don't know, 12, 15 feet. Um, I have a rig sitting here in the corner. It's a metal detector for all intents and purposes, but it is its software makes it capable of discerning um, certain mineral content and, of course, metals down to uh-huh. a, a distance of about 10 meters or about 36 feet. I'll never get it up on top of that mountain. Reason being, metal detectors are illegal for use in Illinois State Parks. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> we might find metal. And that would be bad? <laughs> it, it could be if it was, say, copper from Upper Michigan or, or even worse, bronze from Europe. <laughs> I it, it, It's almost as though... Or <laughs> it, it it's almost as if they really don't want. Um, what about lidar? Lidar is accessible, and I use lidar to a great extent. Um, some of it is actually government sourced. Some of it is not although they tend to agree very closely. The rendering of one over the other is a a whole different tale. Some of them don't render very well. But um, the LIDAR I use is through a, uh, let's see, an individual who is very interested and capable of gathering all the information. Mm -hmm. And And he catalogs it and he lets me use it free of charge. So that's pretty cool. But it is not. It is not universal. It doesn't cover all the areas. There are a few very specific areas I would love to be able to see with lidar that I cannot because, well, it's simply not available from NASA or anybody else. It just, to me, it it feels like anytime there is a, a technology that can see without destroying, you're prevented from using it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, I don't understand. Uh, you can't fly a drone over the state parks in Indiana or Illinois or, well, it'll be in Kentucky after, I believe, January 1st. Um, can't use metal detectors. Um, can't film 
there. Can't do commercial filming without a film permit, state-issued film permit, mm-hmm. because it's state-owned property. In other words, you don't get to play. Well, so 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 the next thing is, so what are they hiding? Um, their reputations at this point. Because of the internet, they cannot hide the information. The only thing left is their reputations. Well, are they just hoping that another generation, you know, if they can make it past their generation, they don't care what happens in the next generation? I mean, the, right. the rea- it, it, it would seem they, to they, me that... They feel like they're carrying out their duties. I don't know why that's so, such a strong feeling for them. Or maybe it's under threat. I don't know. But uh, as far as the professional assassination thing, it is alive and well, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, well, like the Serpent Mound. I mean, LIDAR or ground-penetrating radar would be very interesting to see what was there. Yeah, so would um, um, electrical resistance surveys because it would give mm-hmm. you a depth of, it might even give you a map of the different soils. <laughs> um, uh, there, uh, there are also orbital-based technologies that can image, you know, a few meters into the mound to look for metals with mm-hmm. no disturbance at all. And uh, it, I don't know of anything that would be able to tell us the the profile of the stone chamber or whatever it is, without actually digging. I don't know of anything that would do that. Drilling, perhaps, give you a better idea. But Well, the way technology goes, I would think, give it another decade, and you'll, you know, there probably will be something that will go through stone. But um, just knowing that, that we do have technology that can discover without destroying, um, what's wrong with learning something about, Monk's Mound, about the, the the Serpent Mound, about I mean, so many of of the the you know what they do is they declare them historical, whatever, and you can't touch them. So right. Uh, you I, know, I, it, since you mentioned Serpent Mound, let's go there for just a moment. This year, okay, breaking I don't know twenty years of tradition or so, um, the people in control of Serpent Mound will not allow a winter solstice celebration there. And the reason uh, is? None given. Hmm. It, it, I mean, sad. it's sad and, and, and disturbing. I mean, if a little bit disturbing, if, too, yeah, I mean, they've had solstice there for, Generations. Well, yeah, but the the official, um, we're going to show up and and do candles in grocery sacks thing. That's only been about twenty years so far. Uh, you know, it's an organized celebration, if you will. It's not even a religious. Well, uh, it's a, it's no, it's, it's not. A, I mean, it, it there's. It doesn't conflict with anything other than honoring a change of season, and marking the shortest day. Yeah, I I mean, I I will admit, you know, it is 
paganly oriented, but who cares? Well, I mean that when you, when you go like, into that, the Christian, the early Christians noted it too, and uh, and they would also orient their churches, Catholic, Templar, you name it, so that mm-hmm. uh, one day a year the sun would rise through the window in the east and illuminate the altar through a stained glass designed for a specific effect. Yeah. The the, the psychoillumination, and that's uh, I. Claim credit for that term, psycho illumination of religious spaces has been uh, an art form as well as a science for probably 10,000 years. And we can trace well, it through some of the early Native American sites, the Aztec and uh, Mayan in particular, the Toltec as well, as well as psychoacoustic effects. These places were built to play with your mind. Well, even the stone chambers, a lot of them are are oriented that way. Yes, they are. Um, Along with magnetic anomalies in their entrances, and you can't dig to see what it is. Right. Uh, And if it falls on, you know, state or provincial soil, you can't use instruments without permission. And nobody will give it to you. Right. You can't even find out who to ask in most cases. No, no, and I think one of the biggest, you know, frustrations is there there have been no artifacts found near any of them. You know, that, that you know, before somebody turned up and said, No, no, you can't dig, um, people did look for there artifacts. Were, digs. And it, were there? It came up empty. Yeah. Came up empty. I've got an east facing cave entrance, um, a county away from me that uh, has been explored and 3,600 objects were removed and given to um, a certain university close by. It's still in a stack someplace. Nobody's ever displayed or written about it or anything. And that was almost 50 years ago. Wow. Why? Because there was some writing on it. There was some writing on it. And Jeez. there's no petroglyphs allowed in Indiana. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you know, it, it, it's if you don't take the time, you lose time. You know, if you don't take we the time to learn information, about it. information yeah, exactly. is perishable. People don't realize it. Certain information is perishable. It's use it or lose it, quite literally. Well, and when you when when you look at the like the Narragansett stone, uh, hasn't that been stolen or misplaced? Yes, but it has it? been. It, it has been returned. Well, it has been returned to its exact spot, but it's been relocated. Oh, okay. Because, and the the tower, um, the Newport Tower, that kind of looks like Roman construction to me. Yes, it does. Um, And if you look at the wall, the fortress wall at York, um, it looks a whole lot like that, especially for the corner turrets. The uh, uh, another interesting fact about that particular stone tower, which is thought to predate, well, Columbus, um, (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. It is at the, it is at the other end of one of the lines of communication. Wow. From Cahokia, incidentally. So if wow. if I'm if I'm correct on this whole summation, then in an afternoon or you know a day's time, let's say, it would be possible to relay a complex message from say Newport, Rhode Island to Cahokia, Illinois and return an answer in a day's time. That's amazing. So there was a communication network across this country, theoretically. Yep. Going back almost 2,000 years? Not just this country either. Yeah, going back, well, 3,800 years in the case of the Olmecs. Wow. Watson Break, Louisiana, 3,750 years old. And it's one of those sites. Yeah, I just, you know, you've got, you've got, you know how they have all these tours of Egypt and all, Egypt especially, but now Bosnia as well. Um, somebody should be doing tours of this country and the, and the well, antiquity that's here. There are some tours. Um, one of the most, uh, let's see what would be the right word here. Um, most prolific and long-standing is tours that cater to Latter-day Saints, showing the sites from the Book of Mormon, which also happen to be some pretty interesting archaeological sites. Mm-hmm. And they match up with the sites in the Book of Mormon. I, I can't argue that they certainly match up with the descriptions that are in that book. It's fascinating. Is it, 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 it is fascinating. Uh, and, the, and the signal towers, too, that, that's also part of the Book of Mormon description of whatever this ancient civilization was. Now, I'm not Mormon, but I find now, the information in, incredibly compelling. Now, do they name the civilization? They name the cities. Just like in ancient Europe, we had Rome was a city-state. The empire came much later. Okay. As well so, as Carthage was a city-state, colonies apparently all over both sides of an ocean. And 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 again, I go back to also the fact that. There were the giants and the little people thrown in there somewhere for good measure as well. So that yes. I and and I I don't know that there's a date for the giants and the, did they carbon taste, test any of the bones of the the little people to give us some idea as to how old they were? Not to my knowledge, other than the hominids found on uh, Florian, yeah, Flory's Island, Homo floriensis hobbits. How old were they? they? Were uh, well, uh, the two skulls that were tested the last time I checked were 13,500 and 31,000. So they were there for That's, a long time. Yeah. 
I would say and, so. And recently, by comparison. But they are an entirely different species. They're not human beings the way we think of human beings. Because your wrists are different. Your wrists are somewhere between a human being and an orangutan. Their intelligence so they... probably was closer to ours. Wow. And again, a fact that would be cool for kids to learn. Yeah. I mean... So, we don't know that they had hairy feet, but we call them hobbits anyway. Because only of the because right of, height. Well, that and the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. It's, and and it, they were discovered in a cave. You know, it's a hobbit hole on its own. Um, isn't there a... Um, isn't there in Hawaii... Um, aren't there hobbits there or, or tribes of, they called them hobbits? Um, no, they didn't call them hobbits. They called them, uh, it translates to little people. It also translates to trickster, even though Moana is, or, or Maui is the trickster. There was a whole uh, race of tricksters, small people. Are they the same in Hawaii as this this other groupage? Because I I know they well, they also discovered a, a burial site with thousands and thousands of, of of people in it. I don't know one in Hawaii. There was certainly one in Tennessee and another in southern Ohio. Uh, the one in Tennessee was estimated to be seven thousand individuals, and one in Ohio was estimated to be four thousand to five thousand individuals. In both cases, they were all buried standing up, which still didn't require a very deep hole. Um, no. <laughs> and they bad. were laid out in grids. Well, sorry, but it's, you know, facts is facts. Uh, they mm-hmm. were laid out in a matrix or a grid, which indicates that they probably had grave markers to de- to determine where they could dig without disturbing someone else who was already buried there. Uh, it's not the only instance of marked grave sites. We have in southern Indiana and Illinois and Kentucky, where those three states come together, there are five, I'm sorry, six major graveyards with an estimated 12,000 individuals buried in them, and they had grave markers. Now, on the Kentucky side, a place called the Slack Farm, this was ripe for grave robbing, and they did. They raided roughly 5,000 graves. And, of course, all the other graves are protected so that we have no idea what the artifacts were. We have a few artifacts that were recovered from the slack farm and sold into the market. And granted, at this time, that was not an Ill, at, at the time that happened, 1986, I believe it was, it was not an illegal activity. Not to rob a grave? grave? It was not in Kentucky, it wasn't. Wow. That, that has changed. What about what about Kincaid's Cave in Colorado? Is that a fable or is that? Um, it would be a fable if it was in Colorado. I believe it was in oh. Arizona. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, All right. Grand Canyon, though, right? Yes, and it was and it was uh, 1919, and 
at that particular time, Kincaid was in the employee of the Hearst newspaper chain, uh-huh. which does not, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it was fake, but uh, it is one of the facts about the story that the naysayers used to declare it a fake. Well, that and the fact that uh, the he, newspaper article came out on April Fool's Day. Indeed, it did. Does that mean it's false? No, not necessarily. It means it was great timing for all sides. Yeah. Because, yes. Because here a century later, we're still talking about it. Well, that and the fact so, that, that the area that Kincaid's Cade is supposed to be in is now restricted, and you can't even fly over it in a helicopter. Right. Or anything else, really. But the what he described, um, and it was, I believe he was described as Major Kincaid. Joseph Kincaid, and uh-huh. he described finding um, Egyptian artifacts, Egyptian mummies and sarcophagi and weapons and uh, all these things that, well, you know, he had a major in his name, so he would know about the military part in theory, um, and multiple rooms and thrones and um, all kinds of stuff that, well, nobody else has actually documented, photographed, or whatever, and actually got it out to the public. It, it's, it's been described by everybody from um, uh, the sleeping prophet to some of his accolades to, well, a lot of folks, and, and including mm-hmm. the, the allegations that um, giant mummies, giant mummies, think about that one, uh, wrapped mummies, were loaded mm-hmm. onto freighters and dumped at sea, as you noted earlier. In fact, it's yeah. the second of March. Wow. I, you know, so that's, I, that's the Kincaid story as I know it, at least. But here's another interesting factoid. When John Wesley Powell was doing his two um, sojourns down the Colorado River, he would have had to have passed that place twice. And that's what made him famous and whatnot was, well, he sailed down or passage down the Colorado River twice because, well, he forgot to take a photographer the first time. And his backer <laughs> said, go back and do it over. Oh, my gosh. And he did. <laughs> oh, I just, you know, it, it, it's the history of this country is so rich and colorful and full of questions and mysteries that it is phenomenal and and frankly when I went to school it was boring as hell and <laughs> and and well it's because they weren't you weren't know, telling the right stories they were yeah for sure and now I understand it would cost a fortune to reprint history and and with the way history is being changed today they're going to have to anyhow but but it just it seems so unfair to deprive. I, I mean, I, I talked about all of this material on a show last night and people in the chat room were saying, were, were saying, why is this information just being released now? And, you know, I said, it's been out there all the time. It's a matter of digging for it. They're not hiding it, but they're not advertising it either. And they're not admitting to it on that. But, but, you know, it's so much of it is so well documented 
that it's it's pathetic that we're not it, it, we're not being told it. And, you know, with the alien stuff, we 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 couldn't handle it. But what about the truth of this 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 continent? It, certainly, we should be able to handle the truth about this continent. We should be able to. We we the people are the ones who will eventually have to deal with what is right or wrong about whatever has happened before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, we're being told we need to do reparations for the slave trade. Um, I was never involved in a slave trade. Just telling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, been been one slave to the government for a while now, um, and everybody is, by the way. Yes. Except the bankers. They're they're not slaves to the government. They own. The government. Nah. Um, yes. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. But anyway, um, yeah. What can change? Well, there's that whole 2.8 million acres of BLM lands that somebody's got to take possession of eventually. And the, the federal government is not going to give up possession easily, even though they were supposed to turn it over to the states that wherein it lies as soon as they got statehood. That was that was the whole idea of going from territories to statehood so that they have something to work with. You know, back mm-hmm. in the 18 early 1800s with like the Indiana Territory, Missouri Territory, etc., the land reverted to the states who would then sell it and they were uh, land grant colleges established on the sale of those lands. So wow. when you see Missouri State, that was financed by the state selling land within its territory when it became a state. Wow. It was supposed to happen with all western states too. I just noticed our time. We are out of it. <laughs> but we're we gonna are. have to we, we we have to come back and do this again, and and I'll read the book again and have more questions for you. Um, but thank you so questions. much for tonight. <laughs> All right. There are tons Good of night, them. Good night, Barb. Good night. Thank you. I for love being you. Here. Love you too. Yeah, I love this Good show. Good night. Me too. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye now. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs>